Hi, welcome to Chatting to a Friend. I'm Katie Friend and in this podcast I'm chatting to incredible women about their life experiences and adventures, as well as their thoughts on friendship, community, self-care, setting boundaries and how they keep healthy, happy and sane. Talking to Alice Morrison was just an endlessly fascinating conversation. She is a Scot who has lived all over the world, spending her first eight years in Uganda and then stints in Damascus, in Turkey, in Egypt, in England. Oh, excitement. But then uh, she moved to Morocco. And this is the story of how she came to be a journalist and then rise up within the ranks of media to suddenly realizing that actually that wasn't the life she wanted anymore and became a full-time adventurer. She has done the most extraordinary things. She cycled from Cairo to Cape Town. She's taken part in the brutal Marathon de Sable, the Everest trail race, and most recently has just finished an expedition of her very own walking right across Morocco with three Berber guides and six camels, all with very deliciously Scottish names. She's fascinating. She's funny. She's interesting and insightful. I really, really love this conversation and I really hope you do too. Please enjoy my interview with, as she has become known, Indiana Jones for Girls. And don't forget to listen in right at the end where she gives me my latest challenge, Katie. Hi, Alice. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? I am very well. I'm spending my lockdown at the moment in um, not very sunny Edinburgh. And writing a book, I hear. Yes, I am. I, I Actually, it's really good because I don't know about everyone else in lockdown, but I, I mean, it is very depressing and dispiriting. At least I find it so, especially since I can't get back home to Morocco. But the saving grace is one, being with my parents, which is lovely, and two, writing this book, which is about my three expeditions across Morocco, which amounted to a complete transverse, I guess that's the word, of the country from top to toe. Amazing. And how long did that take that take you? I know it was you said it was in three sections, but how long was each section? Uh, it took around seven and a half months to do the whole thing. By foot with camels. Yep, exactly. On foot. So we didn't ride the camels. We had six. And I had three Amazir guides and Addi and Brahim were with me for the whole trip for the whole seven and a half months. Um, and the camels were used actually for carrying water, particularly and well, water, food and our tents because we were right out in the wilderness and uh, supplies were often non-existent. I mean, water was non-existent in the Sahara stage. So mm. we needed the animals to carry carry that as a human being on your own. I don't, you'd have to either just walk along roads so that you could beg water off passing vehicles. I don't think you could do it self-supported as a human, certainly couldn't do the route I did because mm. quite often we didn't come across any any water at all for, for days and days and days and days. Wow. And so it must have been quite warm when you started to drink it from here. <laughs> literally, literally, I, 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 oh, I'm going to say a joke from your camel back. Yes, that was actually, weirdly, the worst place for that was the third part, which was started at the Mediterranean Sea in Nador and in the far north of Morocco. And we, because we'd been slightly delayed during COVID, but actually we were able to do that last stage during COVID, which was amazing. Mm. Um, we started at the end of August. And I mean, August in Morocco is very, very hot. So even yeah. though we were on in the mountains, just on the fringes of the reef mountains, it was absolutely bakingly hot and yet the water coming out my camel pack was not quite boiling but you could have easily put a tea bag in it and got <laughs> amazing well I uh, I am in Nador every year believe it or not I, I land in Nador for yeah I travel with the what used to be called the Paris Dakar rally um so I'm through Morocco every year with them and uh yeah even in January uh you know, Morocco is a pretty hot place to be. So I can't even begin to imagine what it's like in uh, in August. So um, yeah, go Paris on. Dakar is finished. I mean, it, it, the last episode in Morocco was in 2000 and 
eight, it was cancelled, wasn't it? So Under that name, yes, but the Africa Eco Race took over in uh, 2009 and has been running ever since. And I've been there. I didn't get to go this year, so I can only imagine how desperate you are to get back because it is quite truly and honestly the best two weeks of my year, <laughs> hands down. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I love it. So I'm, um, so I'm very keen to hear more about Morocco, but I'm going to go back wind back, wind back, wind back to baby Alice, six weeks old and um, heading off to Uganda uh, for the first eight years of her life. That sounds very formative. <laughs> well, I think it was very formative. And what happened was my parents um, met and married at university and my mum did her law finals. No, she had me on the 25th of May and did her law finals in June. And then you know, six weeks after I was born, my parents headed off to Uganda on a ship because in those days, um, it was more usual to go by boat than by plane. Mm. And in those days as well, I think it was very common. A lot of Scots uh, went abroad for work and my parents just looked at lists of jobs available all over the world on their university notice boards and chose Uganda. So off we set. So yes, my formative years were spent in, in the countryside as well, in the bush mm. in, in Africa. And I was wondering, because I just listened to an interview the other day with Mark Beaumont, you know, the round the world cyclist, um, who's also yes. Scottish. And he was saying that he was homeschooled as a child in Perthshire, not in Uganda. But he was saying that part of the reason he felt that he had quite an adventurous life was because he had not had the rules and being held in by playground rules as a child. And I wondered if you felt that a childhood running free barefoot in the wilds of Uganda had given you a similar outlook on life. Possibly. I mean, we did have plenty of rules. I went to school. I didn't go to school till I was seven. Mm. My parent, my mom took me to read when I was about three and apparently I took to it like a duck to mm-hmm. water. But um, I went to Mrs. Gilfillan's primary school and Mrs. Gilfillan had a meter long ruler, which she called granddad and oh. um, which she used to whack us with if we didn't get things right. <laughs> and it was it had been whacked on us so often. It was, it was actually tied together with sellotape because it had broken oh, several times. <laughs> We had plenty of rules, um, but I think we did have a huge amount of freedom. And actually, the freedom—I had that same freedom in in the west on the west coast of Scotland. When later on in life, we'd come back from holidays. So I think there is a freedom certainly being brought up in the countryside, mm. and I think you find that most people would say that. And yes, I do think that feeling of of you know, just being part of the landscape, really, you're just another animal on the mm. on the earth is a really good one, a really valuable one for children. So definitely, you know, let those kids roam free as much as you possibly can. It will, it will encourage them to be courageous, I think. Um, and it's kids, kids don't come to that much harm, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know, I don't have kids, perhaps I'm talking absolute rubbish. And I'm sure mothers are throwing things <laughs> But I think what perhaps is more important for me, what I would say for me, is that my parents never, I never had the impression there was anything I couldn't do Mm. as it wasn't wasn't capable of. Yeah. I mean, there are lots and lots of things I can't do, um, but I never, I was never kind of trammeled in that way. Mm. My parents never said, oh, you can't do that because they just were like, if you go and do whatever. And I think they're also their uh, example was that, you know, they, they just took off with a six week old baby into the countryside of a small, a small country in East Africa. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, that's quite a thought. My my mum had never left Scotland before, but she didn't think twice. She just did it. No, I think that's absolutely incredible. And they must have been quite young then still, like in their what, early to mid-20s? Early 20s, yeah, they were. Yeah. Um, my dad had been, he was, I think, the last, probably the last intake of people who did national service. So he'd been all over the world with the Navy and he was in the Merchant Navy. So it wasn't such a shock for him. But as the same, my mum had never left Scotland, but they really did take everything in their stride. They didn't, nothing, we just had a normal childhood. We used to drive a thousand miles to the coast, Mombasa and Kenya, every year for our summer holiday. And we'd live for a month in our tents. So we camped all across Africa. Oh. As children, mum used to hang Robbie, my baby brother, she used to hang his nappies off the roof rack to dry <laughs> as we were driving along. So, you know, that was the kind of childhood I had. And I think that is what 
uh, gave me the confidence to do things later. Yeah, and I was reading in your book, uh, Dodging Elephants, when you took off to the to, to do the Tour d'Afrique, which I'm going to come on to, but I, I've, I've just got to Kenya. That's as far as I've got so far. And I loved how you said that you suddenly felt a little bit more like your childhood started to come back because you were bilingual in Swahili and you had to sort of, you kind of tried to, to get that back. It must be lovely to go back to somewhere where you have such fond memories of. It is. I think because we left Uganda when I was eight, my memories are, are there are not that many of them, but what you do have is a physical memory. So mm. um, you, the air, you feel, you suddenly feel at home yeah. because the air is the air that you had as a child. The smell, smells are so evocative, even the noises, you know, the birds and the people and things like the, the redness of the earth, the murram that is along the roads and the vegetation, all of that, because you grew up with it, it's, it is part of you. And you feel, I feel very, just so comfortable and so happy. And so in a place that I do feel I belong in, even though obviously I'm a Scot and it's Africa, so I don't really belong, but I, I really do feel like I belong. Um, no, it's such a lovely feeling because I don't get back to Scotland very often. And I love living in Switzerland. I love it. So gr grateful and privileged to be here. But I do know exactly what you mean because when you go back I go to back to my parents house and it's just it's home it's still it's like you know as you say that sort of muscle memory of how it feels how it smells how it you know affects your sort of the nostalgia part of your brain and all that kind of good stuff I love that and I think it's extraordinary to have that from a country as you say where you wouldn't necessarily feel like you would belong as a white scot <laughs> yeah I mean again you know a lot of the dialogue at the moment particularly is about racism mm. and about skin colour and about cultural clashes. And I think I'm actually very keen to talk about the absolute opposite of that, mm. which is as humans inhabiting the same planet, you know, we are all interconnected. And honestly, humans are humans. And really, I think if you reach out with an open heart, all you'll get back is, is goodness. So I, I find this discourse at the moment really I'm sure it's necessary and it will be useful for people. But for me personally, I find it quite upsetting mm. that we're only focusing on what divides us, whether that be gender, whether that be race, whether that be anything. People seem to want to fight each other and to hate each other for what they are. And that goes across both sides or all sides of the divide. I mm. hate you because you are X. I find that extraordinary. I find it yeah. destructive. And I would really prefer if I possibly can to keep on the other side of that and just to talk about how wonderful human beings can be um the pleasure I've had in the people I've met and I hope the pleasure they've had in me and the fact that you know it says in the Quran that God made us so that we, God made the different people the different tribes the different kinds of people so that we might know each other and what a pleasure it is to get to know mm. different cultures it's the richness and and I was talking of that because you live in a community in Morocco, don't you? In a family community, is that have I got that right? I do. So fa I'm, I'm sure many of you are aware of this, but in Morocco, the, the family is the most important thing. And, mm. and especially, I'm, I live in the mountains. I live in Imlil, which is about an hour and a half drive from Marrakesh, and is the base for trekking mm. all through. Uh, the Atlas Mountains and up to Mount Tubkal, which is the highest mountain in North Africa at 4,167 metres. <laughs> um, and I live in a, a little, what they call a doar, and doar just means houses. Dar mm. is a house, doar is the plural. So I live in uh, a, a compound, I think is the best word. There's there's four families in me, but the four families are all from the same family. So I live mm -hmm. in Doar Asyam, which is the name of the family. It's like saying I live in the house of Morrison. Um, <laughs> and we have we all, our houses are built into the mountain at different stages. Wow. And so we're on slightly different levels. And then we, have, we share a communal yard with the, a gate at the end. And the cow sleeps under, the family cow sleeps under my bedroom and the chickens are <laughs> under my sitting room. And, um, and it's very, very nice because, and I miss it dreadfully because, mm. you know, I'm there every day and, and it's a second family for me. So... And so it, w with what you were talking about earlier, what have you found that you have 
loved about these people that, uh, you know, family is everything to them, which we, we sometimes miss a lot in our part of the world. Um, but, you know, obviously you will have lived a lot of time with them with births and deaths and marriages and all, all sort of just being right in the heart of their community. Yeah, well, I think for me personally as well, you know, I'm not married and I don't have children. And that was a, a strong choice on my part. But I'm actually lucky enough that, you know, I live with 25 people. <laughs> so, and, you know, I'm like a kind of eccentric auntie for the children. And kind of my landlady said to me the other day, she said, I haven't got a sister. Will you be my sister? So I have all that love and affection, but I can also shut my door. Yeah. <laughs> in my little house, which is, is wonderful. And I've learned a lot, a lot, a lot from from the people I live with, particularly the women, because society is quite segregated in that the women and the men socialize mm. and eat separately. But from the women, what I've learned about is to be less, less judgmental mm-hmm. and less snooty. Um, and I don't like those things about myself, but I think we all ha- have them to some extent. You know, I've had a fantastic education and further education. I've got a couple of degrees. I have traveled the world. I'm a writer. And so I do value education and, um, I guess career success. Mm. And I think those are, are good, you know, things to strive for. And I still do think that, but the women I'm mixing with, all the mothers are illiterate. Wow. They didn't go to school. Yeah. And it doesn't detract from them as people at mm. all or from my affection for them, or in fact, the fun we have together and the conversations that we have. And I think that has been a big lesson for me. Um, slightly ashamed to say that because I shouldn't have, you know, those thoughts initially, but it's true. No, no, I think, I think that's very honest because we all, we all have prejudgments or judgments of a situation or a person. And, and it, you're right. It is very liberating, I guess, or empowering to sort of realize that about yourself and tackle it sort of fairly head on, I think. It is. And there's room for improvement with all of us. Plenty of room for me. (laughs) And um, one of the things I've learned, really, truly learned, and it's very much in chimes with what we talk about in the West or certainly on Tinterweb and what very, very few people do. Um, The community I live in, people are, they just are, and they judge people on what kind of person they are. They do not judge them on what they do or what they achieve. Mm. Those things are not really that important to them. They don't care that I've run around Everest. They just like me because I'm Alice. Yeah. And because I'm nice to the kids and because I love spending time with them and I love them all. And they miss me and they love me and they tell me. They don't care about my achievements. It's meaningless to them. They care about whether I'm a good person. Mm. That is really something to learn. And it's so true, you know, our achievements, which again, I think coming from my background, I've, I've kind of measured, I like challenges, so I like to achieve them really for myself, actually. Mm-hmm. But I do base quite a lot of self-worth on that. And over there, they just don't. I mean, they're desperate for me to get married and have children. The fact that I seven <laughs> is complete non-deter. I'm like, ladies, I can't have kids. They're like, oh, but God, God can make anything happen. We can have a miracle. We know a nice man. <laughs> because for them, the real worth of a woman particularly mm is in her family and in her children. So I'm often, I'm judged very harshly by many people I meet as being worthless as a mm. woman because I haven't done that. And I've just had to come to terms with that and live life on my own terms. Yeah. Well, I find that so fascinating. And uh, pr- p- presumably part of your ability to become so close to these women particularly is your, because you studied Arabic at university. Is that the language in, with, in which you converse? No, we speak in Tashlahit, which is um, the Amazir. Um, Amazir is the correct word for Berber. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because Berbers, by some Berbers, feel that the word is pejorative. Oh, right. Um, because it has this idea in French of barbarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it actually comes from the Latin word, barbar, which mm-hmm. means just blah, blah, blah. Because when oh. the Romans invaded Morocco, they heard people speaking Tashlahit and Tamazirt, and they were like, oh, what is this blah, 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 which in <laughs> Latin is bar, bar, bar. So that's where the name originated. Oh, how fascinating. So, um, yeah, it is. And so I have to speak Tashlahit as much as possible with the women because that's what they speak. People speak Arabic if they've been to school. Ah. These okay. women haven't been to yeah. school. But the reality is I speak Arabic a lot. By Tashlahit, I am learning, but it is still frustratingly basic, mm. um, although I really try. Um, 
so I do speak in Arabic and the young, the girls, all of whom have been to school and are going to university, mm. what a change in a generation, they all speak Arabic. So we, we muddle along, but that has made a massive difference. Language, speaking to people in their own language breaks down enormous barriers. And even if you only speak a few words to people, it's it's an immediate kind of icebreaker for sure. Oh, I could not agree more. I, I, I speak... Well, I speak English and French, and then I I can muddle through in French, German, uh, sorry, Spanish, German, and Italian. Wow, that's great. Everywhere I go, anywhere I go, I try to learn the words for please, thank you, excuse me, good morning. You know, just just a few words, and and I quite often I'll ask the taxi driver or the guy at the hotel, just can you just give me a couple of things, and you know, because I think it makes such a huge difference. People's faces just light up when they hear their own language coming out of your mouth, I find. I think that's completely true. And and it's really worth it. And it's also just fun. I mean, I love words. And Tashlihit is such a fabulous language. It has all these, these lovely things like, which I'm actually putting in my book, and I hope people like it too. So for example, mushrooms mm. are called are called Arum Agaiwar, which means the bread of the crows. <laughs> oh, I love that too. <laughs> And I tell you why I love it is because the other day I was talking to somebody about um, curfew because, you know, France has a curfew at the moment and we are right next door to France. And I was speaking in French and I didn't know the word in French for curfew. And somebody said it's couvre-feu. And I just got this great burst of delight. I'm like, oh, they're the same. They're the same. One has come from the other. I love it. Yes, I, I, it is. Language is a, is, a, is a permanent joy, I think. Oh, I c- couldn't agree more. So how many languages are, are you able to speak then? Because I know you, you also studied Turkish, is that right? I did. Uh, Turkish, I'm, I studied it for two years and I, I was in Turkey um, living with a Turkish family in Istanbul for a little while. But my Turkish, I couldn't speak it now. I, I, if I went back to Turkey, I think because I've had got those basics, I would relearn. Mm. Um, Arabic, I speak reasonably well. Um, certainly enough, to people will. Mis- if I'm in Egypt, people will think I'm Lebanese. <laughs> if I'm, in, you know, if I'm in Morocco, people will actually sometimes even ask me if I'm Moroccan now, which is great. Oh. But usually, they, they think I'm Egyptian. Um, so there's a kind of that kind of thing. Uh, I speak French again. I just learned it at school, and I think a year at university. But it's good enough, and I, I'm not that faced. I speak a tiny bit of German, but I, I'll give anything a go. Yeah, I religiously will. And you know, when I did that long cycle across Africa, I learned a little bit of every single language. So, and at one point, I got quite good at Amharic, bizarrely, in Ethiopia. I heard. I, well, I've been reading that very. Uh, although Ethiopia seems to have been a bit of a challenge, uh, I, I read that you'd taken out a, up a bit of the language to help along the way. Um, so I'm going to. That's where I want to come on to now because after uh, you sort of came. Back back to Scotland and you went into your freezing cold Edinburgh school with two pairs of knickers. I love that story because <laughs> that sounds not too dissimilar from my own Scottish upbringing. Um, and, uh, and then off to Edinburgh Uni to do Turkish and Arabic and, and so on. And then you kind of went down a sort of, well, obviously I, I know you spent two years in Egypt, but then you kind of went down a, f- a more traditional sort of journalist and then you know, sort of into being a, a CEO of a big company. Talk to us a little bit about that sort of kind of the first grown-up period of your life. Yeah, I mean, a long period. Mm. And I think it, it's, I mean, it interests me now that I've kind of changed so much again. I'm like, gosh, you, you know, don't do things by half. So, <laughs> yeah, I came back to, after Egypt, so I came back to the UK when I was proper, I mean, I did university in Edinburgh, but uh, I started my career really when I was around, ooh, I guess, 23 in London. Um, and because I had already had experience, I took a year off before university. I left school at 17 and took a year off and went to work in Dubai. And my dad, actually, my dad found me a job, well, asked a friend of his. And she said, yeah, we need an assistant on a new magazine. So I got a job on a magazine when I was 17 and I learned so much. And that stood me in good stead and kind of steered me towards journalism because I got, I had Arabic and I had the magazine experience. So I got a job being assistant editor on a bilingual Arabic English magazine in London, moved from there into Arabic 
news, Arabic TV, moved from Arabic TV into the BBC and Sky, did tiny stints on ITN and Channel 4. Um, and so I had, you know, I developed my career from there. And I think for me personally, I've always striven. I like hard work. Mm-hmm. I like challenge. And I want to, I want to win, you know, basically, I want to succeed. And it's not really for anybody else. It really is for myself. I want to get further and further and push and push. And it's, I really genuinely, it's innate. I can't help it. I've, there's always another horizon. Um, so I, I was fortunately really rather successful. And, you know, I moved up, became an editor on BBC TV news, um, which was amazing. And then I, I left and went onto the internet and was on this big ISP right in the very beginning was managing editor of that. So, and then I was, became CEO of a, of a Quango, effectively a private public company, which was there to develop the media industries of the Northwest. And really the thing that drove me was I've always loved my jobs. I like working and I just always want to do my best. I want to push. I like to fight. I like to win. And so I did it. I mean, I've probably changed now a bit, but um, that was, that was the impetus. And I lived in Britain I lived in London, then I lived up in Manchester in the Northwest, which I love, and I still have a home in the Peak District. So those those were, you know, very happy, productive years, I would say. I mean, of course, there were struggles because in order to succeed, you have to you have to fight a lot um, in the workplace. And by fight, I mean really push, 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 push. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was it was it was great. And I think also the other thing that I, I had no idea about was that, that I was storing up resources for changing everything and becoming a full-time explorer adventurer. And talking of that, how did you, as I, I saw on your website, you know, when you were in Manchester, you started to kind of dabble, I guess, although dabble quite <laughs> with some fairly large challenges. What, what sort of triggered that? I think it's this impetus to push, really. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not athletically or sportly gifted at all. Um, but I do love the outdoors. And I think it was that thing about subconscious, very, very subconsciously circling back to that African childhood, mm. you know. Um, all my holidays were always outside, climbing, walking, um, cycling, taking on anything I could. I wanted to do challenges when I wasn't working. And it was it was having reasons actually to be out in nature. I think that was the drive there and, and also the enjoyment of it. You know, I like working in a team and was always with people and it was fun. It was really fun. So, mm-hmm. and it was a counterpoint because particularly as I moved through my career progress, when I became a chief executive, um, I loved lots of things about it. I thought what we were doing was really quite worthwhile invest investing in media industries and training people and giving them opportunities to grow their own companies. But it was quite tough. And I, I found it quite a shock to move from team leader to the boss. So I wanted other things outside where I was just one of the gang and just doing things. So that's where that impetus was. I understand that the Quango got shut down and you were you know, a bit disappointed and upset. Perhaps I'm underestimating, underselling that and decided to do something completely different. Exactly right. Now, I don't know if you've ever been made redundant or if anyone listening has ever been made redundant, but it's actually very difficult. And I was the chief executive of the company. I built it up from scratch, had over 40 staff, 10 million pounds a year turnover. It taken up nine years of my life and it had been a very difficult job enjoyable but really very tough it's frustrating but on the other side of it for me it was in a way a liberation and so that was a realization that I've come to in retrospect because the job was very tough it was very tough being a chief exec it was fantastic don't get me wrong and I wouldn't have not done it but you know it it is this very specific kind of a job and so I was bruised I was wounded I felt unappreciated and that I'd done all this work for nine years, given so much, and that apart from money, of course, um, that it it had gone, mm. you know, a little bit unappreciated. That that's the wrong word. I can't use the word, and I'm sounding like I'm moaning. I'm not. It was a brilliant job. I got well compensated. My colleagues were amazing, and I was very proud of what we'd achieved. But closing the company down that you yeah. built is horrible. Um, 
and I didn't do it in the end. I there were three of us at senior management level, and um, my deputy wanted to take the challenge on, and he wants to become chief executive. I wanted to leave, so I left um, mm. in the first wave. We couldn't afford three big salaries, and the other two wanted to stay, so I left. And yes, I wanted to get as far away as I possibly mm. could and do something to feed my soul. So I joined up to cycle in the longest bike race on earth, earth from Cairo to Cape Town, um, 8,000 miles or 8,500, I can't even remember now, 8,000 miles uh, on my bike. So, and to get back to those African roots, I felt this real longing for mm. it. So off I went. And it just sounds like, as I say, I'm not, I haven't finished the book, but it's just, I absolutely cannot tell you how much I'm loving it. And it's just extraordinary. Tell us more because it's just so extraordinary. And how did it change you if it did? Oh, of course it did. It did a bit. Um, I think the, the first thing is I w- certainly wasn't bike fit, but I was really quite fit apart from that. But I wasn't bike fit. I'd be mad. Mm. I mountain bike in the peaks. You know, that that means you, you might do 10 kilometers, but you're certainly not doing yeah. 134 a day, day after day after day. And actually that winter, I signed up in November and we set off in January. And that winter, no. it snowed all the time. So I really <laughs> didn't get on the bike at all. I, my training was sitting in front of Strictly Come Dancing on a turbo trainer, yeah. eating chocolates. So really, <laughs> I don't think all bike fit. Um, my bike was actually really good for what I wanted to do. It was built by... Um, Dave, mm-hmm. Giant Dave, I call him because he works for Giant Bikes, although it wasn't <laughs> a giant bike. And we chose very carefully, you know, he's a bike builder. So, for example, we chose a stainless steel frame mm-hmm. because it could be welded if it broke, it could be welded anywhere and it has a bit of give in it. You couldn't use mm-hmm. carbon fiber because if it broke, you'd be out the race. Uh, you mm. have to, you know, use your bike for the race. Um, so that was well chosen. But yeah, I basically cycled on a mountain bike and friends came to join me in Zambia and they all had road bikes because they came from one stage mm. and I mean you know trying to keep up on road bikes when you're on a mountain bike on the roads yeah. it's, it's like oh wow this is tough so yeah so I set off and it was just the first couple of weeks were just kind of hellish <laughs> but it, it is like that when you go into something new I mean we were cycling for in order to maintain the distances, especially across the Sinai of Egypt, um, we were on roads for that first stage. And I was cycling into fitness and into getting my bottom hardened because you're on the saddle a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going, in order to maintain the distances to actually make it, you had to cycle in a peloton because that reduces wind yeah. and therefore make, allows you to um, go faster. But the peloton was faster than I was. So I was cycling faster than I wanted to for eight mm. hours a day or six hours a day. Um, and that is just... That's hard. I know that that's hard. Because, you you know, you most yeah. people can maintain something for five minutes, 10 minutes, I mean, possibly mm. even an hour under the rest. But those, that hour is blooming long. And we were doing it for much longer than that day after day. So... It was an exercise in not thinking too far ahead and managing your mental state. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm quite interested in that. And is that, had you, because obviously you'd had a fairly successful ke- career and you said that the, the job as the CEO was tough. It was tough, tough, tough. What What's the difference between that mental toughness and the mental toughness you had to face, certainly in those first two weeks? Well, I mean, the great thing about getting a bit older is that all of your experiences um, give you strength and give you power. And I found that actually the things I'd learned as a CEO about being tough, you know, standing up to people who hated me purely because I was in a company that they were combating or whatever, um, and taking very difficult decisions about staff, etc. They did help me in the Tour de Frique because you do grow tougher, you know, you do get braver. I think bravery and toughness are actually just like a muscle, a mental muscle. So there is a difference, of course, physically, you know, you have to actually physically be able to do it. But so many things are in the head and being able to control your thought processes. So yeah, I did find the toughness I'd learned on, if you like, in the corporate world, very much came to my help in the adventure. And this might be interesting for people. A lot of the people doing Tour de Frique, there were 63 of us, a lot of them, I would say, were alphas. You know, Mm. a lot of lawyers, doctors, surgeons, that kind of, that was quite a 
big part of the demographic. Amazing. And so you went on from doing the Tour d'Afrique to sort of uh, on to do Marathon de Sable and you moved to Morocco so you could train for it. And what was the process? Talk me through the process of going, actually, this is really what I want to do with my life. Well, it was definitely a process. You've absolutely used the right word because, you know, I didn't wake up when I was, I don't know, 32 and think, I want to be an adventurer. Um, it, It just came to me and I just started following the path that was being laid in front of me and trying to make opportunities on that path. And the more I enjoyed it, you know, the greater the opportunities I took. And I just kept on taking risks, I guess you would call them, um, to, to progress further and, and trying. And it's been, I mean, it has been a path, oh my goodness, full of rejections, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that's difficult, of course, is doing these expeditions. I have to gain sponsorship. I have to get press interest. I have to try and enthuse people to, to come along with me and spend their money on supporting me on these expeditions. So, um, that is a constant move forward. And one of the the great things is I look at it like a journey. I just look at it that I'm walking along this path and some days are going to be good and some days are not. And you just carry on, carry on. Yeah. And so, cause you've done, uh, you've done races and you've done your own, you know, world first and expeditions and explorations. You know, I sort of put myself in the situation a few years ago where I said I was not going to do any more, um, never getting to a start line again. It was too stressful and checkpoints and just, oh, too much other people's expectations or, you know, that sort of thing. And then, of course, well, now I've entered the Marathon de Sable for next year. So I'm pretty excited about that and looking forward to reading um, about your experiences on that. But what do you find are the main differences between that sort of organized racing or, you know, like an actual organized thing and your own dreamed up world firsts and explorations? Well, the, the, um, there, there are pros and cons to both, and both are fantastic, honestly. I think the advantage, the real big advantage of an organized thing is it's organized, then you, you don't have to do it. So I think that is number one. Uh, and I enjoy as well being with a group of like-minded people. So again, on the organized ultras or, you know, the Tour de Freak, you're, you're flung in with people who self-selected to be there. So you are likely to make friends for life, actually. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the organizers will have chosen good paths and good routes. And it, it's great. It's, you're, you're cashing in on their experience, which is invaluable. Um, the con, of course, is it is actually very stressful and racing. I'm a horrible, I'm a terrible runner, like a horrific runner. And, you know, like you, I signed up for the MDS and then I spent a year of terror, not a year, nine months of being terrified about it. Mm. And it is stressful, you know, having to make checkpoints, having to make time cutoffs or you'll be disqualified. And also the, the, the thing about you know, that you get terrible. I got, I got terrible imposter syndrome. It's like, oh my goodness, mm. me, I'm a terrible runner. And here I am doing the toughest foot race on earth. And everyone else around me is a racing snake. <laughs> I mean, it is, but, but I really do think doing those organized races is, is an amazing thing to do. And I, I would do a shout out to people to say, give it a go. And I've actually, it's easier to do an ultra than it is to do a marathon. Um, mm. So, well, I've never done a marathon, but I've done an ultra before. And I just think doing a marathon on the road sounds terrible. <laughs> very hard work. My hat really goes off to marathon runners. So yeah, yeah, I think both are good. I think the pros of doing your own expeditions is, I mean, you do feel magnificent. You're like, I'm doing my own expedition. So you do get that like, oh my Lord, this is fabulous feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, of course, on a more serious note, you get to do what you want to do and to go where you want to go. And often on mine, I've been places where, you know, of course, people have walked there and been there, but no, or very few people have actually done the whole thing. So you do feel special and you, you do see things that other people are not seeing and experience things that other people are not experiencing. And it's not that I want to exclude other people from doing things. It's just kind of joyous to be there on your own um, or with your team, in my case, with my my Amazir guides. So, mm-hmm. and you also get the opportunity to form your own, what do you want to see and do? So like on this last one, I was hunting for dinosaur tracks. Oh, I mean, amazing. That's pretty cool. So there are- And you found them. Const- yes, I did find them. <laughs> and I've written a blog about it. Do have a look at it. Um, it was terribly exciting. So you do get those high points and also your own expeditions tend to be longer. 
Uh, mm-hmm. The Tour de Freak was very long. I think there are pros and cons to both. I really do. But and much to be said for both. Oh, yeah. When I say cons, cons are small. Pros are big. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. No, I completely get that because I have a little project. Well, it's kind of a big project cut into bits of walking from home to Rome on the Via Francigena, which passes right by my house here in Switzerland. And I just do it sort of when I can, three or four or five days every year, you know, maybe a couple of times a year, me and the dog, and we just set off. And I just love it. I love probably more than anything I've done or that I do, just that feeling of getting up and just walking every morning. That's all I have to do. I have to just walk. And it's such a lovely way. And, you know, I don't know anyone that's done it, although thousands of people have done it before me and will continue to do it hopefully after me. But it's just a just a lovely feeling of being on your own. That's wonderful. And look, kudos to you. You know, I know you're a wife, a mother, a podcaster, and you're actually still finding time to fit something in. And those adventures that start literally from your door are Mm. fantastic. And it doesn't, like you say, fit it in, do it. It, You don't have to do it all in one go, a great time cost and, you know, having to sacrifice things. You can do bits and stages and just do stuff. I really commend you for that, Katie. I think that is absolutely the way to go about things. Thank you, because it could, you know, I could, it can be done in a month or something like the Camino in Santiago, but I just quite like, I, I look forward to it and I sort of look forward to spring because I think, oh, yeah, I can just bust out my rucksack again and, and off we, and I can just go, you know, and it's of no odds. To, I'm not far. And every time I just drive a bit further, park the car and off I go and it's perfect, you know, and then I just walk for a few days. Love it. Um, so what did you, you've mentioned, a few times uh, through this interview about uh, about changing, about not being the same person anymore. And do you really believe that we're not the same person after we've experienced this? Or we're just a more rounded, grown person? How do you think you've changed? Well, I think it's an interesting question. I think there's all sorts of things at play. And I think as you get older, you circle back towards your own childhood as well. I think you you were influenced by the people you meet and by the things you're doing. Uh, for me personally, I think it was very good for me to actually fail, for my company to fail. It was very bad mm. on the round. But, you know, I was crushed because I'd had this rather amazing lifestyle. I, you know, really enjoyed it was hard, but I really enjoyed my job. I went to the Cannes Film Festival and the BAFTAs and we were successful and we did, it was all good and it was growing. And, you know, I went to all the, the, I was invited to everything and I was somebody and I had a PA and a PR team and all of these things. And then the minute it finished, like literally the minute I closed the door and left, I was nothing. And believe Mm. me, in the film and TV world, the minute you've you're nothing. You're literally nothing. <laughs> people won't even people who've you know spent years buttering you up will will not even greet you in the street. Oh my word! I'm not even that sounds doing, hideous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody who worked for me for three years who will remain nameless actually totally blanked me when I went up to say hello, how are you, and shake their hand. Um, and it's like Brutal. because I wasn't important anymore. So that was it was shocking, but actually it was really good for me because it made me mm. reevaluate what I really cared about and what I really consider to be worthwhile and valuable and how to um, measure my own self-worth. And honestly, truthfully, I think that's very important. I think when you know what you are really strongly and you get back to what you really love doing and want to do and feeds your soul, whatever it is, then you do grow as a person. So I'm grateful for these experiences. Yeah, no, I've you, you. It's not you're not the first of my guests to mention that and the feeding the soul, making yourself happy, personal growth, all these things, and just getting out and doing it. It seems to be a recurring theme, and one of the reasons I started this podcast was to learn. Well, it was to share stories initially, but it's just extraordinary how much I have learned from the the women, including yourself, who who I talk to because they're not all adventurers or super sports people but it's always the same thing. It's just, it's the sort of get started, know that there will be tough times and just keep going and you will learn and grow and, and become, yeah, as I say, a well, a more well-rounded version of yourself. And you'll have fun. I mean, you know, life really is pretty short and 
the truth is you won't be able to remember everything as you go through your life. You, mm. you certainly can't predict anything as you go through your life. So actual enjoyment of your life, enjoying it, being happy, if you can be, is so important and not focusing on all the hard things and just moving into that positive space. I think that that is really, really helpful. And it's not always possible. I mean, I find Corona very difficult. I find the constraints. I can't get back home. I can't get to my home. Mm. I've been here for three months. And I'm, you know, being positive every day. Huh, well, yeah, I'm trying. But I've certainly moaned a lot more than I would normally. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it is all about just cracking on and I mean, my biggest piece, I have actually got a piece of advice for people that I have learned the hard way, and that is don't look too far ahead. Yes. And and that that is for everything, like you were saying in the Tour d'Afrique, when you could only think about the next five kilometers, and is true for life itself. Yeah, it is, you know. I mean, then they have a lovely saying in Arabic, which is, um, <laughs> trust in God but tether your camel. And that sums it up for me. It's like, just trust in God. You know, you're going to get there. You, your life will be what it is. You actually don't have any control over the bigger things, like when you're going to die. Um, but do tether your camel, you know, do, do take, do plan. I mean, of course, you know, <laughs> do, do take care of yourself and don't just cast it all to the wind. But, but you have got to have faith because we don't know what's happening and where we're going. Who would have predicted this time last year, that we would be a year on in a pandemic. No, I know. I remember when it first started and, you know, and it was, I loved having my kids at home. Uh, we only had one lockdown here, which we've been very lucky about, as in with the kids at home, yeah. off school and that sort of thing. And I absolutely loved it. I found it was a, an enormous privilege to be able to be at home with them. And it was kind of exciting. It almost felt like an adventure in itself because we, you know, we did school and then we did all sorts of stuff outside. We live in the, the mountains. So we were able to be in the garden and you know that sort of thing um but I remember saying at the time oh I hope in six months time we're not going oh god how naive we all were and sure enough here we are <laughs> we're about almost exactly a year to the day since we went into lockdown and we're still we're still the world is still dealing with this craziness so it is hard it is. It is really hard. Um, so what is next for you other than getting home, which is obviously your primary oh, goal? <laughs> she weeps quietly. Um, <laughs> yes, my primary goal is to get home. I've been trapped for three months now. It's too long and it's depressing. However, let's not talk about that. Um, my next goal, so I'm finishing my book. I'm two thirds of the way through. Uh, and so. does it have a title, a working title? Uh, it has a working title of Walking with Nomads, but we shall see when it goes to the publisher. I don't know when it'll be on the shelves, but I will let you know. Awesome. And apart from that, I'm trying to you know, do the day job because I have to earn some money um, of travel writing and broadcasting. But that is extremely difficult at a time when there ain't no travel. So there isn't no money in the travel business and so nobody's commissioning. So, you know, uh, it's it's a permanent struggle. On the expedition front, I am planning a big one. Um, yeah, a really big one. Definitely, I would say my most challenging by long chalk so far, uh, really in terms of organisation, because the area I'm thinking of trying to explore is I don't know anyone there. I don't have any contacts there. I don't have any get-ins there. I don't even know if I'll be allowed in by the government. So it's a real big one. But I think, and I've slightly shied away from starting on it because I'm scared. Yeah. I think I need to listen to my own wise advice and just crack on. <laughs> yes, done, not perfect. Yes. <laughs> Started even would be good. Yeah. Um, well, that's very exciting. And, well, let's see if we can get you back on once that is, uh, well, has been successful because inshallah. we shall think positively and exactly, inshallah. Um, and how can we follow you and follow your journey? And what's the social media chat? Guys, I am a social media whore. So I am on everything. Uh, if the easiest way, if you forget all this, is just to search Alice Morocco and you'll find me. My website is alicemorrison.co.uk. Links out my Twitter, Clubhouse and Instagram are Alice out there one. That's the number one, Alice out there one on Twitter, Instagram and Clubhouse. Facebook is Alice Hunter Morrison Adventures. YouTube is Alice Morrison. And the, my podcast is Alice in Wonderland with an A, Wonderland. And mm -hmm. I have broad, been broadcasting live from my expedition. So uh, lots of wind noise, but kind of quite a lot of drama. 
So you get a real taste of what it's like actually being on the expeditions. And and books available through the website on Amazon. What's oh, Katie, you are a good woman. Thank you. Yes, please <laughs> do have a think about supporting me and buying a book, and hopefully enjoying traveling with me. Uh, Dodging elephants, Morocco to Timbuktu, and Adventures in Morocco, all available on Amazon, and you can get to them through my website, alicewarrison.co.uk forward slash books. Uh, awesome. Well, as I say, I am I'm thoroughly enjoying Dodging Elephants. It's just brilliant. And um, uh, of all my guests, um, and really, truly, I mean this, of all my guests who are, are all extraordinary, I think yours is the life that I um, most, or your sort of your journey and the part of the world that you live in just, just fills me with the biggest amount of excitement and just the smells and sounds and all that sort of part of the world. Just, I just love it. So um, more power to you to get yourself home as soon as possible. Now, I don't know if you remember um, or if I spoke to you about this. I've started a thing on the podcast called Challenge Katie. And it was asking each of my guests to set me a little challenge or a bigger challenge, doesn't matter, um, in an area of their expertise. For example, two guests ago, she's given me a cycling challenge. Sarah Williams of Tough Girl Challenges has set me a goal to run a mile every day in March. Anything you can think of that might tickle my fancy and give me something to do? Yeah, I'm actually going to give you one that's a gift because uh, when I ran Marathon de Sable, you're going to find this thing that will help you more than your legs is your core. Uh, Running through the sand takes a real toll on your back and your and your um, abdominal wall. So mm-hmm. I am going to challenge you to do Pilates twice a week for the next month. Twice a week? Yep. can only be okay. you can do half an hour, that's fine. But twice a week for the next month. Because Excellent. Truthfully, truthfully, Katie, it will help you. No, I, I absolutely couldn't agree with you more. And it has been, it is one of my goals. It's on my monthly goals to do once a week, but I will up that to twice a week because it is something in all the things that I've done. I know that when I get tired, my core is not strong enough to hold me up. Physic, of course, I'm actually still up, yeah. but you know, I, I haven't got that sort of muscle memory to keep me, you know, strong. So thank you. That is now on the hashtag challenge Katie, uh, roster. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's just been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I just, uh, I hope, uh, I think we were saying before that you might be in Morocco helping out with the Marathon de Sable next year. So it would be an absolute joy to, to meet if we can. Let's try and make it a date. And it's been lovely to talk to you. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week with another incredible episode of Chatting to a Friend. In the meantime, please give us a follow on Instagram, Chatting to a Friend, for all the latest news. Bye-bye.